I thought that I would listen to shells and see what they had to tell me about the environment and what's happening to the oceans and use seashells to tell that story, which to me seemed like a pretty straightforward thing to do. But what happened once they got into the research, I realized that they really said more about humanity and how we treat each other. When We Talk About Animals, a Yale University podcast. I'm Jennifer Skeen. And I'm Rebecca Morris. As kids, we learn that if you place a shell against your ear, it becomes an auditory portal to the ocean. It's a powerful illusion as, merged with your ear, the shell creates an echo chamber of noises that transports us to breaking waves and sea breezes, creating a moment of intimacy and wonder between us and the natural world. Much as shells have done throughout human history, as our guest today, Cynthia Barnett, writes in her exquisite new book, The Sound of the Sea, Seashells and the Fate of the Oceans. From our earliest ancestors, human history has been inextricably tied to the pearlescent, the ribbed, the spiraling, the speckled, and the iridescent calcium carbonate wonders and the unsung animal artists of the ocean that create, inhabit, and leave them behind. As Barnett writes in The Sound of the Sea, Shells are the legacies of some of the world's most inventive and prolific architects, mollusks. Biomineralization, the process by which these animals recycle ocean minerals into hard, protective structures, evolved in microorganisms more than 500 million years ago, which eventually gave rise to the tens of thousands of known mollusk species today. These soft-bodied animals have, quite literally, reshaped the world. As Barnett writes, we walk on a world of shell. From limestone aquifers to chalk to marble, shells made by these animals are the foundation for much of life on Earth, and they're a blueprint for our ever-changing planet, their fossils even documenting Mount Everest's more humble origins in the seas. Shells are just as fossilized in the course of human history. In her book, Barnett takes us on a global journey across millennia, from the Andes in Peru, where the shell trumpets of Chavin inspired awe and fear over 3,000 years ago, to the great cities of Shell of the Calusa people in Florida. Yet, as Barnett documents, shells have also brought out and reflected humanity's worst impulses, from the luxury dyes produced with murex shells by the hands of enslaved peoples, to the role of cowrie shells in the Atlantic slave trade. They are the harbingers of the fate of our seas in the Anthropocene, with mollusk populations around the world decimated by an onslaught of plastics, chemicals, climate impacts, and overharvesting. And from iridescent shells of giant clams to the medicinal secretions of cone snails, they may hold the key to our salvation. Cynthia Barnett is an award-winning author and journalist who has reported on water and climate change around the world. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, The Atlantic, Orion, and many other publications. She is an environmental journalist in residence at the University of Florida College of Journalism and Communication, and we are thrilled to get to speak with her today. Cynthia Barnett, welcome. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I'm so excited about the lovely depth in your introduction to the book. And I'm really excited to talk about animals, one of my favorite topics, and not not usually what we talk about when we talk about shells. You write in the book that a shocking number of people don't even realize that shells 
come from animals. They assume that they're a form of rock or stone. According to one survey that you mentioned, 90% of Americans don't realize that shells are made by animals at all. And yet these shells, as, as you describe, are the life's work and the homes of an incredibly diverse array of sea creatures. Will you tell us about the animals that make shells and how and why they do it? Yes, sure. I want to quickly mention that survey that you mentioned is not 90% of Americans, but it was a specific survey of visitors to a seashell museum in Florida called the Bailey Matthews National Shell Museum in Sanibel. They surveyed visitors to find out how much they already knew about seashells. And those surveys revealed that about 90% of people who visited the museum and they were they were often tourists and children uh, visiting with their families and so it was 90% of that group that didn't know that a shell is made by a living animal and I found that really really shocking and that was that was actually the statistic that led me to the book and for a long time I was sort of in disbelief about that but since then I've I've come to believe that it is a very high number. And I've also talked to a lot of teachers about, you know, just the number of kids who aren't exposed now, especially to the coast. Even in Florida, there are plenty of inland children who have never seen the sea, much less being able to, you know, handle live uh, mollusks or, or observe live mollusks. So to answer your question, the mollusks are this incredible group of animals, the largest group of animals after arthropods that include insects. And I, I decided to write about marine mollusks because I came to see seashells as a really beautiful way to help people understand what's happening to the earth and what's happening to the animals and to marine creatures. And seashells have been so beloved in all of humanity that I kind of came to see them as ambassadors. And that beauty, that beauty we're so drawn to is, as you say, made by a living animal. So the mollusks is a huge group of animals that live everywhere from the top of the Himalayas to the deepest uh, seas, and I'm writing specifically about the marine mollusks, of which there are 50,000 named in the ocean, and yet probably twice that many unknown and still unnamed. So that's another kind of exciting part of the story is that they're still being discovered all the time. The other thing that is so fascinating about these animals is that they've survived for 500 million years. They are, the mollusks are a half a billion years old. And that means that they survived earlier periods of warming, earlier periods of ocean acidification. So those that we live among now are really some of the world's great survivors. And I love that part of the story because so so often when we talk about animals, we're talking about such a devastating story, right? Especially with all the mammals that are threatened with extinction. So I, I liked this idea as a topic in, in so many ways. And my hope is that it really draw helps draw people to the story of life in the oceans. 
It, it absolutely does. And that disconnect that you highlight in that survey is especially shocking given how intimately we've been connected to shells and, and mollusks throughout human history, even dating back eons. You open your book with a really wonderful imagined scene of a Neanderthal girl walking down a beach 100,000 years ago, looking at the shoreline and collecting cockle seashells for a necklace, much as you know kids do today. And the finding of shells in Neanderthal uh, settlements was really momentous, encountering common narratives about Neanderthals being sort of dumb, uncreative brutes and, and suggesting that they were making art and appreciating nature's beauty just like we do today. Why are humans so fascinated with shells? Yeah, so thinking about why people love shells I think it has to do with their beauty and their elegance. And it also has to do with that history that you were just referring to, right? I think there's something within us uh, that's drawn to seashells that really dates back to those Neanderthals you mentioned who were picking up shells or even long before them, you might remember Homo erectus, Java man had drawn those geometric zigzags on, on shells, uh, mussel shells at the Solar River in Java. And so, you know, archaeologists think of that as some of, some of the earliest known art. So I think part of why we love shells is that memory, that long memory of humanity, but also our intimate memory of collecting seashells as children. And that's something I did with my grandmothers and then my mom and I certainly collected shells with my kids. And so I think it's it's on those two levels. But the other piece is just the extraordinary patterns. I'll read a tiny bit that I really think you might appreciate about galaxies and, and just the patterns in shells for all their color, gloss, and architectural flair, the allure of seashells may have most to do with the geometric order in their forms. The intricate patterns follow evolutionary blueprints drafted in those earlier seeds. Seen sideways with their two halves pressed together, the radial ribs of a cockle shell close like a pair of wings around a great bird. To stare into the top of a whelk or cone shell is to see the swirl of the Milky Way, a reminder that Native American people as widely separated as the Aztecs of Mexico and the Winnebago of Nebraska equated shells with stars. And I did find so much in this literature, you know, spiral shells evoking galaxies and I just love that. And that's, that's about their logarithmic pattern. But what I really love about that is, you know, something small reflecting something big. And that is what this book is about. You, you mentioned that I teach journalism at the University of Florida. And, and part of what we teach young journalists is sort of the beauty of finding something tiny to tell a big story. And I've kind of been teaching that lesson for my whole career. Mm -hmm. And now <laughs> this, at this uh, more, more advanced time in my career, I actually did that in a really huge way. Your book, I, I love that passage. And your, your book opened 
my eyes in many ways to how astounding Shell's physical properties are, some of which you just mentioned. But as physical objects, you know, I think I hadn't thought about it in, in much depth prior to reading. They're just truly wonders. But you also make clear that these physical features of shells have shaped human societies in profound ways all over the world. And one of those physical features, for example, is, is shell chirality, the direction in which the shells spin. If you were to enter your, you know, enter your hand into the shell of a conch, for example, whether it's right-handed or left-handed, which has been this incredible mystery, but also, as you describe, impacted human culture in all sorts of interesting ways. Will you tell us about that mystery and some of the ways in which the, the physics of, of shells have, have impacted who we are? Well, I can, I can tell you a little bit about a shell called a lightning whelk. So as you know, the listeners may not know, the book is organized around 12 shells that have been really iconic to humanity in some way. So as, as you heard, there are, you know, more than 50,000 of these species. This was not an easy book to organize. And I, tried a lot of different things that didn't work. And what I thought would work and what I hope did work is that, you know, I, I found those shells that could tell a fascinating human story, but also tell us something about the way we're living now and what we might learn from seashells. So one of those was a left spiraling whelk called the lightning whelk. And Almost all shells, if you hold them up with the pointy part, which is called the apex, if you have a gastropod, which is that univalve shell that you think of, a conch shell, if the pointy part is pointing up, the opening is almost always on the right. But in a lightning whelk, in a few rare instances, a shell will spiral to the left. And there are possibly some evolutionary reasons for that. And there's also a lot of scientific uncertainty about that. But the beauty of the story for me was that the lightning whelk was extraordinarily important to people of the Mississippian cultures of the Eastern United States, you know, which ranged from Florida all the way up to Canada. So I write about you mentioned in your intro, the Calusa of Florida built these incredible shell cities on the coast that few people know about because they were, they were used for building roads and farms and so on in the early 20th century. But this gorgeous shell called a lightning whelk was really important to the Calusa for making tools and for food and all kinds of reasons. But they also traded it to the north, as far north as Cahokia, which was a really great, you know, ra rather an ancient metropolis in uh, North America and in what is the region of modern day St. Louis. And these lightning whelk were so important. In fact, the farther they were traded away from the Gulf of Mexico and Atlantic where they came from, the more important they seem to become. And some of the archaeologists and anthropologists who work on this shell in history think it has to do with the left-handed nature of the spiral and that that had some cosmological importance to Native American people 
Um, that also that also has to do with the Earth's rotation around the sun. So it's really all very beautiful, very deep. And I hope that some of those stories about our place and where we come from and how profound these animals have been in our lives in earlier ways can kind of help us grapple with the challenges of the modern moment. Those stories about the the Calusa and Cahokia were really astonishing. These descriptions of these giant cities of shell and these you know sixty foot tall structures that that were found. The the findings of the lightning weld beads within middens in Cahokia and these beads, as you describe, are, are harder than iron. And you write that the number and the precision of these beads found in these middens really suggests a full time workforce dedicated just to their production. So there was there was a tremendous amount of effort and resources poured into this reverence and value of these shells. And one of the other things I found so incredible was the amount of indigenous knowledge and wisdom there was around the shells and the origins of shells and their their own knowledge of what this meant for the origins of the earth. You write about how shells have provided sort of a grounding for evolving scientific understandings of, of evolution and how, how the world has changed throughout uh, the course of history. But in many ways, indigenous peoples like the Zuni were, were far ahead of these developments in Western science. Can you talk a little bit about that? Oh, absolutely. I, and that is a story I didn't know before I started working on this book. I had been interested in the Zuni before and, and thought I had read a lot about the Zuni, but, but what I found fascinating was the extent to which they understood that the presence of, you know, fossil oysters, clams, ammonites, and other marine life in their part of the world, which is the, basically the southwestern desert of, of the United States, what's now the United States, they knew that an ocean had once covered the North American desert. They, they, you know, they are recorded as having talked about this and having known this. And it's, it's interesting because when you, when you read a lot of the history of science, you hear so much about the Greeks and Romans and what they knew and how advanced they were. But there, there are many other cultures all over the world in their time and earlier times who also had come to those same fundamental conclusions because of the clues in the earth. So one, one story I have to tell about the Zuni that I just love was that they had described to Frank Hamilton Cushing, who, who lived among them in the late 19th century. They described an ocean of sunrise an ocean of sunset, an ocean of the place of everlasting snow, and the ocean of hot water. And of course, the ocean of hot water is a very accurate description of the Gulf of Mexico then and and even more now. But yes, absolutely. I mean, indigenous knowledge, as we're finally acknowledging in our time, was just as advanced as Western knowledge and, you know, more so for people who know land and know their place and know how best to manage their place. So we're really seeing that now 
with things like wildfire management and so on. But it's definitely also true of the oceans. And the book is a portrait of shells, of course, but as I think is clear already from what you've said so far, it's also a portrait of shells in human hands. And sometimes, as in the indigenous cultures that you had mentioned, they have been treasured and revered for their spectacular beauty, but they've also been used for harm by humans. You describe in the book the role of the cowrie, for example, as the first global currency, which was not a story that I was familiar with, but spread, as you described, farther than the Roman coin. Will you tell us about that shell and its role in human history? Sure. So something I think is important about this story. So so what I found in shells was that they reflected humanity. When I first started working on this book, I knew I knew that cowries had been money for a very long time. They traded globally. This is a small, I should step back for a moment and say this is a small and I should say absolutely gorgeous mollusk that lives on on reefs and all over all over the Pacific and, and very much in the area known as the Coral Triangle. It's a beautiful little animal. If the audience Googles Monetaria Moneta live. Google live Monetaria Moneta and you will see some of these little animals that I got to see in the Maldives. And it's, it's just so cool to think here is a shell that we know so well, right? We know that so, we know it so well because it was money, but we also know it so well because it was, it was jewelry in ancient times, but it's still jewelry. Like where, where we live in, in Florida, all the teenagers buy cowrie shells still Mm -hmm. in the in the summer at the beach shops they've they've kind of been appropriated of course but we we're very familiar with the shell and we're never familiar with that animal it's a really unusual and gorgeous Mm -hmm. animal but what i found in telling the human history is that shells simply reflected who we are in different times so the cowrie also has a beautiful part of the story in that it was really important in earlier cultures to fertility and for good fortune and for, you know, as a protector and keeping people safe. And the sad thing about that is part of the way it became money is that people saw the reverence that others had for these shells. And over time, they traded in, in small ways. And then that, that got bigger and bigger and bigger over the centuries until, as you said, European traders were filling ship ballasts with money cowries to purchase all sorts of things all over the world. And that included human beings and in, in the transatlantic slave trade. So it's estimated that a third of enslaved Africans forced to the Americas were purchased with these money cowries. So it's a terrible history and it's the shells reflecting who we are. And I, and I do have to say that in, that in working on this book, one, one weird thing is that I set out to write a pretty straightforward environmental book. I thought that I would listen to shells and see what they had to tell me about 
the environment and what's happening to the oceans and use seashells to tell that story, which to me seemed like a pretty straightforward thing to do. But what happened once they got into the research, I realized that they really said more about humanity and how we treat each other. So in the times when shells became money, this was true with the story of money calories, and it was also true in the story of wampum in North America. When shells became money, when they transitioned to money, that is when things start to go wrong. And, and it, there's, just, there's just little other way to say that. Greed would become part of the equation. Harm would become part of the equation. The wampum story is a little bit similar to the cowrie story in that people revered wampum beads, which were, which were made from a clam and a whelk. The clam is called Mercenaria Mercenaria. And the reason, the reason Linnaeus named it Mercenaria was because the colonists used them for what they called mercenary transactions. They were these, you know, small transactions. They learned the shell was valuable to native people. And so it was not the native people for whom it was money. For native people, it was more like a language or a means of exchange. It was not a monetary exchange. So it was colonialism that makes it a monetary exchange. And that is also when you know, again, again, greed comes into the picture and it turns into a darker story. So it's why the book turned into a book about the environment and the human story and the human injustices. And and so by the end of the book, I conclude, and this, you know, this is this is true in the modern environmental story too, that we really won't fix environmental problems and some of the other, you know, many of the problems you talk about on this show that have to do with animals, none of that will be solved unless we solve the human injustices at the same time. And that, I thought that was, you know, it was interesting to me that that's where the shells led. And so that's sort of how the book had to end as well. And so I, I, I end the book. I the, write about the money cowries in, in chapter five and tell that incredible story of the money cowrie and how they were harvested and how they start trading around the world. But then I return to that. I return to that shell in the conclusion because I thought that was a really important kind of the lesson of the book. This role that shells have played in reflecting human behavior to each other has also been, it's also reflected sort of human behavior to the environment and our penchant for for overconsumption. And shells have been so wrapped up in capitalism and wealth inequality and issues of, of unequal distribution of resources. And one of the really incredible instances of this that you talk about in the book is this shell madness or a conclomania that, that gripped European society at the same time, actually, as the tulip craze. And architects creating these walled grottos for the aristocracy and Marie Antoinette's, um, you know, shell, shell uh, refuge and, and Rembrandt, all of these folks were bitten by this shell craze. Can you talk a little bit about that and what was driving it? 
Yes. And that you're, you're right that that, you know, these things are happening, this shell madness and the tulip madness. When you look at history in our periods of excess, shells show up there, right? So like you said, you know, people start building grottos, relatively large shell grottos in their gardens. Uh, wealthy people have shell rooms. Curiosity, you know, we think of curiosity cabinets and, and, and you, you know, curiosity cabinets from, from the 18th century and so on. But there were, there was a time when there weren't just shell curiosity cabinets, but entire shell rooms devoted to showing off the shells of royalty and people, you know, dilettantes would make a, they would make a little book that described their shell room so that people could come and take a tour and they would get a little commemorative book of this, this incredible excess. So it got, it gets so crazy in the Netherlands and, and where it comes from. The interesting thing is this is also the rise of capitalism, right? And the, the rise of the first global corporation. So like the Dutch East India company, there are ships leaving the Netherlands and going to uh, what is now Indonesia and, and the East and bringing back these incredible shells that no one has ever seen before. So the shells on the North, on the North Sea had been, you know, more muted and, and not quite as beautiful. And there are evolutionary, interesting evolutionary reasons for that. But these, so these explorers or conquerors would go out to tropical islands and bring home all of these amazing looking shells and people just went mad. So like you said, it was, it was called a madness. It was, uh, it was referred to as conchleomania. Rousseau, Rousseau wrote, he had a relative in the Paris countryside who was, who was stricken with conchleomania. And he said his lively imagination saw nothing but shells in the natural world. And he at last sincerely believed that the universe consisted of nothing but shells and remains of shells and that the whole earth was nothing but so much shell sand. I think that I think that line is so funny because that's sort of how I felt when I finished this book. I think it was how I felt when I finished reading it too. <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure you did feel that way. But the interesting thing about and so and so it gets so crazy. Yes, a single tropical seashell would be trading as much as one of the rare tulips in the in the tulip madness times, but moreover one of those shells or even one of those tulips could have been traded for as much money as a painting by Vermeer, right? And so the, the issue was that people thought they were rare and they weren't rare, but no one knew that. And so when people think something is rare, it can really drive the price up and that's what happened here. And it was the same story as the tulip mania, with the tulips, they could, of course, be grown. And when this, with the seashells, these were actually, these animals were all alive and well and living under the sand in the, uh, in the, in the Pacific. And so once more and more 
explorers would would go out uh these these collapsed in value over time but it's but it's really interesting to look back at history and see that excess and where it comes in and it, and it you know we have these we have these times when we lived in really extravagant ways and i would say that we're in one of those times now and there's you can kind of look at the arc and the curve of history to see where we're headed if we don't if we don't get a handle on that excess the comparison between the shells and the remembrant painting is interesting one to me because it seems like with humans we're always very interested typically for a painting for example and who the artist is but with shells we were rarely interested in the artist um throughout throughout history but very interested in the shells um and that you know the animals inside were considered for for a long time and and still are i think in, in many ways considered inferior to their vertebrae cousins, particularly the vertebrae cousins with central nervous systems. You, you quote at one point the great American shell author and educator Julia Ellen Rogers, who has this wonderful line where she says, to see hundreds of scallops the size of a silver dime flitting through the shallows on a bright summer day will certainly convince you that even mollusks can express the joy of living. And so I'm curious, did you experience mollusks and were you convinced that they're experiencing the joy of living um and more broadly how did how did researching the book change your understanding of the animals inside and, and how we see them that's a great question and you just read one of my favorite quotes in the book that i came across and, and julia ellen rogers really deserves to be more well known she was a fascinating progressive era nature studies advocate and there was this whole there was this whole movement across the United States in the in the progressive era just just at the turn to the 20th century where nature study was required in American schools it was it was really important and people valued it and teachers had curriculum to be able to have snails in their room or have gardens at, at school and watch watch bird eggs hatch and all of those things that we now pine for that we now realize is so important to children that we've really lost and there's an insidious story behind that that I don't have time to tell about how that movement was lost and tamped down in many in many cases by male scientists who felt science books should be written by by men so i hope some of your listeners will want to hear that story and and read the book but to answer your question about joy i i love the question and i will say that i think all animals not just mollusks but any living being expresses the joy of life and sometimes that is that is our interpretation of joy but to me in their own way they are expressing their joy so there's a there's a very age old animal question in florida for people who love to be out on the ocean and that is why do mullet jump we have these beautiful fish called silver mullet and when you're mm. when you're on the sea especially in the shallows you will see mullet jumping and uh scientists have you know great theories for why they jump it might have to do with shaking off their shaking off their parasites and all kinds of 
you know, communication theories, but I always like to think that mullet jump for joy. <laughs> and so I, I like to think too, I think that about dolphins when I see dolphins. And I like mm -hmm. to think that about all animals as their expression of their being, right? So in terms of the the sentence of, of mollusks, there was an interesting, I came across an interesting quote of Rachel Carson when I was researching queen conchs. She was very concerned about the disappearance of the queen conchs as early as the 1950s. And she has this lovely line in the edge of the sea, the queen conch seems an alert and sentient creature. Perhaps this effect is heightened by the eyes born on the tips of two long tubular tentacles. The way the eyes are moved and directed leaves little doubt that they receive impressions of the animal surroundings and transmit them to the nerve centers that serve in place of a brain. So there's the great Rachel Carson Obviously, she knows that the mollusk doesn't have a have a brain. They have these bundled cords of nerves known as ganglia that send signals to their big foot muscles and their mantles, which is the part of the animal that builds the shell. So this one called the cerebral ganglia are as close as they come to a brain and that controls their eyes and their tentacles and their other uh, sensory organs. And then they also control reproduction and shell building. But I love that she, you know, looks at the eyes and looks at the way, and, and this is so true when you're, when you're underwater with some of these animals and watch them, they feel very intentional. That is, that is, I think, the best way to put it. Like I, you read in the scallop chapter that I always, har I hate to say this, but I harvested scallops for many, many years. And that was an important part of my, uh, my being in, in Florida and loving the ocean and being out in wildlife. And so when you see a scallop and the way it swims and, and these crazy eyes that it has, it's got these beautiful blue eyes that are looking all around all the time and it can really see things coming and, and outswim you. So yes, in, in writing this book, I changed the way I look at mollusks. Even when I was a kid, sometimes I would go out with my father this is not in the book, but it's something I, I think about a lot and that bothers me. Um, we would go out in his boat. He taught me how to spearfish and he taught me to collect conchs and make conch chowder. And he would even take pretty small. We have these little conchs called Florida fighting conchs. And he would kind of carve them out for, for with his pocket knife and we would make conch chowder. And the the shame of that is that I didn't even I didn't even like to eat it that much. I just thought it was very overrated and it was kind of more fun to harvest, you know, whether it be conchs or scallops, that is something that human beings have always done and enjoyed. And after and so my approach with this book 
And I decided very early on, I'm going to be very honest and humble and human in my approach and in trying to figure out how to live best with this earth and with these creatures. And so in that scalloping chapter, the more I learned about the plight of wild bay scallops, the the less interested I was in harvesting them, even though that had been a really important part of my life for a very long time. And I raised my kids harvesting scallops. By the time the kids are teenagers, and I am at the end of that chapter, and remember this book took me six years, so the kids (laughs) transitioned in that time. (laughs) By the end of that chapter, we are not collecting scallops to eat, but we are still going out in the Gulf of Mexico and we're taking photos of these beautiful animals and we're seeing lots of other wildlife because we're not so you know, obsessed mm-hmm. with trying to fill our dive bags with scallops. So, so what was important to me was to be honest about that process and talk about the seafood that I always ate and think about you know, is there a way to do this sustainably? And I I think the answer is yes. I actually still eat a few shellfish, including aquacultured clams, which are which are really delicious and good for the ocean and for fishing communities in that they clean they clean the ocean as they grow. They don't require, you know, the the fish food that can pollute the seas and um, some of the unsustainable shrimp farming practices. Growing shellfish often cleans up parts of the sea, keeps coastal communities clean, and, you know, offers a way for fishers to make a living, which going back to that other piece of the human justice story is really important to solving our environmental problems. So I think that, you know, I hope that this reflects the possibility that other people are in the same situation I am and, you know, imperfect and not sure exactly how to eat seafood, but really hoping to learn about how to eat seafood and how we can live differently. And so I hope that maybe this book will help people make some of those same transitions. I really like the Monterey Bay Aquarium app for having it on your phone and being able to, you know, if you are out to dinner, you could you can actually call up whatever dish you're considering and and see exactly how it's harvested, whether it's sustainable, whether the animal is imperiled. And, you know, those are all really important things to know if you choose to eat seafood or other kinds of meat. Yeah, your own your own story about your personal evolution of, of your, your ethics and stance on this really resonated. And I, I think will for a, a lot of readers. And you had mentioned Rachel Carson, who, of course, was the product of of some of this, some of Julia Ellen Rogers' efforts to bring nature into the education system. But of course, this was not something that that necessarily stuck. And, uh, you know, our own approach to educating children and to our view and and ethics around animals and animal harvesting has very much changed over the years. And, And you write about this one 
time in mid-century America in places like Sanibel, Florida, where people were being encouraged to bring back the animals alive in their shells and plunge them into bleach or freeze them or use ants to eat them alive. And um, none of this was to consume meat, but to, to hoard the shells. And this included in children's books. Can you can you talk a little bit about some of these books and, and what, what they were? I'd be happy to. So yeah, so one one important thing to me that's really different here is that you're right, we're not talking about food anymore. We're not talking about seafood or collecting mollusks for food, which is something that, that humans do that we've always done. And now hopefully we will learn how to do more sustainably if we can if we can grow some of these shellfish and stave off climate change. This is a very different and, and weird time in history. And, and, and here's another time of excess, right? That's another interesting thing about it. In the post-World War II boom in, in the United States, there was an incredible shell madness here. And it had to do with all the young men who had served in World War II and served in the Pacific and they came back with these extraordinary shells as keepsakes for their girlfriends and moms and wives and this incredible shell madness that had kind of started in the early 20th century really reached a hilt in about the 1950s. There was a shell club in every city. Um, people sh- uh, traded shells through the mail. Every newspaper article I, I read talked about how it was the number one hobby in the United States in the 1950s, far more popular than bowling or any other, any other kind of collector's club or craze. And Sanibel in, in Florida, and there, there were also parts of California and other parts of the coastline, but Sanibel was one mecca. Sanibel um, being an island where a lot of shells tend to wash up because of its position. It's kind of pokes out sideways and it serves as a trap for mollusks and their shells. So people loved coming down to Sanibel and collecting shells. And, and the joke was the best place to find seashells in Florida was just south of the Georgia border because that's when the shell, the animals would be dead and start to stink up the trunk of the station wagon, and families would actually have to stop and dump out their shells on the side of the road. So it's it's hard to know the extent to, to which people thought about mollusks as animals. You know, even now, as you mentioned, I don't think we really think about them as animals very much. Rachel Carson certainly did, and, and people hopefully increasingly do, but in that time, uh, yeah, there, there are really macabre descriptions in both adult, um, you know, shell collector guides of which there were increasing numbers in the 1950s. And most disturbing to me are all the children's books that I found. So I started, I started looking at really old children's books and this, this extended to the 1930s and 40s and 50s. And I'm actually holding one in my hand right now. I bought some of these. This one is called The How and Why Wonder Book of Seashells. And so it's one of the, it's one of the wonder books from the 1950s. 
It's this whole book about these wonderful seashells and you get to the end of it and there's a section about how to remove mollusks from their shells. And it says to get the best shells, you must bring them back alive. So it was just like even the newspaper stories would say, you don't ever want to pick up an empty shell because it won't be shiny enough or it won't be beautiful enough. You've got to get the live animal. And so just incredibly macabre descriptions for how to kill the animals that include bleaching the animals. A lot of them had to do with jamming in a a knitting needle or a nut, a nut pin and piercing them and pulling them out. And I, and remember, I told you my own father would carve out the little pink Florida fighting conch with his pocket knife. So it's all, it's all kind of that era, right? And as you say, the, the worst one I found was the guy who suggested live, the live shell should be buried in an ant pile for the day. And then when you bury your shells in an ant pile and then come back from the beach and they'd be all cleaned out for you, which I'm sure isn't even true. I'm sure that would be a nightmare. You know, that was like, I think it was Pliny who described how to how to extract the purple dye. And he really didn't know what he was talking about, because it was it was the enslaved people who were extracting the purple dye. But anyway, what what I think is important and heartening about this story is that we don't live like this anymore, right? If you picked up a a children's seashore book today, and there are some lovely children's books about seashells, they are very much about the animals. This book came out in summer 2021, the same summer as a heat dome in the Pacific Northwest of the U.S. has caused mass die-offs of mussels and other marine animals. It's estimated that 1 billion marine animals were killed in in that recent heat wave. And those impacts will, of course, be felt downstream in all sorts of ways. But your book makes clear that the impacts of climate change on shell-dwelling creatures are manifold. How is climate change impacting these animals? Yeah, so it's, it is a complex answer. And it's, it's more than heat. And a really a really important piece of this story and and another reason I think shells so well symbolize what's happening to the oceans is that these animals use minerals in the surrounding seawater to build their shells. So because the sea has become so much more acidic, it's about 30% more acidic than it was at the start of the industrial era. And that chemical change, which is called ocean acidification, has begun to limit the carbonate that mollusks use to make their shells. So they use calcium carbonate, but they're becoming limited by that acidification. And acidic waters are also boring into some shells, so so pitting them or eroding them. And this was first recognized well over 10 years ago with pteropods, small butterfly shells in the in the Pacific Northwest, sea butterflies in the Pacific Northwest. And, and now it's seen in pteropods around the world. And it's starting to be seen in other kinds of shells. So part of the answer has to do with their shells. And part of it is that it is very clear 
that some parts of the ocean are beginning to become too warm for mollusks. So that's true in some areas of the Mediterranean. It's true. It, it may be true in some areas of South Florida. The, uh, some scientists who work on queen conchs suspect that part of the reason conchs haven't come back despite our 40 year ban on collecting queen conchs has to do with the fact that our shallow waters have become too warm. So these are the kinds of things that we're going to keep seeing. And yeah, that, that heat dome was absolutely devastating to look at those, you know, they're usually just incredibly beautiful, sleek muscle shells that live on the rocks were just absolutely, you know, cooked. They were, they were cooked alive. And, and apparently the smell was absolutely hellacious. When you think about all those millions and millions of animals dying on the rocks up and down, up and down the coast. So these are the kinds of things that we'll keep seeing. I, I will say that another fascinating and intriguing and hopeful part of this science is that some mollusks appear to be adapting to both chemical changes in the oceans and heat, sometimes in just one generation. So that that science is evolving and, and really pretty new, but there are some there are some signs that mollusks are evolving to adapt to climate change. And of course, that's what they've been doing for 500 million years. We, we didn't talk about this, but the reason, the reason for their beauty, we talked about why we love their beauty, but the reason they came to build these amazing structures was all about protecting themselves in various ways. So spikes to ward off enemies or you know, those super glossy ones like cowries, scientists think they are glossy and humped like that to slip out of crab pinchers. Many things that they do have to do with survival and protection. So it, it could be, you know, what scientists see as they try and adapt to, to climate change. Speaking of, of climate change, one of the most ironic stories that you tell in your book has to do with the history of shell oil. And of course, we're all very familiar with the Scout shell on, on the company's logo. But this history of this company is actually very deeply tied up with shells as art keepsakes. And of course, shells are now being profoundly impacted by climate change, driven primarily by fossil fuel extraction. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of shell oil and how shells sort of lay at the foundation of this now global behemoth? Yeah, so the company's history actually dates to the early 19th century and this curio shop owner in the East End of London, his name was Marcus Samuel, and he loved seashells and he imported tropical seashells to meet demand for a shell craze among the, the middle class. So don't you love the Victorians, how they get into things and they just they just grab on. So you you remember the royalty had been really into into seashells the century before. <laughs> the thing I love about reading about Victorians is that then then things are spreading to the middle class and they get really excited 
about a lot of different crafts and hobbies. And so the Victorians just went nuts about seashells, but more like smaller seashells and craft items. So Marcus Samuel catered to that love for seashells among the Victorian middle class. And he came up with the idea for those little shell bejeweled gift boxes that are sold. And I love this too. They're, they're sold to this day in beach resort towns. So every time I'm in a beach shop in Florida, or if you're in a beach shop in England, in Brighton, you will see a little shell encrusted box that you can buy for a souvenir. That was what made the family's first fortune. And so in the next generation, his sons, who were actually still working out of the little seashell shop in the East End, they basically beat John D. Rockefeller in Standard Oil's bid for global oil domination by building the first tanker that could travel through the Suez Canal, and it brought kerosene to Asia. So the uh, the the son whose name was Marcus Samuel Jr. There were three sons, but this is mainly being orchestrated by the namesake Marcus Samuel Jr. He named the first tanker the Murex for the tropical species of mollusk that builds this really ornate spiked shell in honor of their father. And actually, during Shell's early history and often today, the oil tankers are named for seashells. And so the the great twist, and this is actually something that has happened since the book was published, some new research has come out of the Mediterranean. I interviewed a scientist about a month ago named Paolo Albano at the University of Vienna, and he was researching the issue we were just talking about. He was researching heat In the Mediterranean, one of the warmest, one of the fastest warming oceans in the world is right there in that same part of the world I was writing about when I was writing this chapter, uh, which is mostly set in the Mediterranean. They were analyzing mollusk, native mollusk populations to find out how much they had been impacted by heat. And they found the single most devastating die-off of mollusks was along that Mediterranean coast. It was the murex. And so, in other words, it is no exaggeration to say that someday the only murex in that particular part of the world could be the oil tanker and not the actual animal for which it was named. And I just found that, I found that incredibly poignant. I, I hope to write a story about that Murex research, and that's why I interviewed that fellow. But I could hardly believe the irony and, and so much of these ironies that come full circle in history, right? To think that someone who loved shells would be in the history and the founding history of of a company that is involved in our fossil fuel crisis. So yeah, it's a really, it's a really poignant story and, and kind of incredible to learn about the mollusk research after knowing that the very first Shell oil tanker was named the Murex. 
One one final question we like to ask our guests is, are there any books, movies, or, or other works that have been really inspirational for you or your work that you would like to share? Oh, oh, sure. This will sound cliche because a lot of people talk about Rachel Carson, but when, t- when people talk about Rachel Carson in my field, they usually talk about Silent Spring, which was mm-hmm. her expose of chemical pesticide and its pollution and impact on animal life and us. But where I am particularly inspired by her and return to these books before I started The Sound of the Sea, I'm very inspired by her ocean writing. So the edge of the sea and the sea around us were really important books to me that I went back to. I had read them when I was younger, but I went back to them, um, you know, but before I started writing this book, just to think about, you know, to kind of sometimes you have to get in Rachel Carson's brain. <laughs> and then I also really, I really love her book, Sense of Wonder. And I think it's such an important book. It was written uh, for children and it harkens back Two, you mentioned that Rachel Carson was one of the children who was lucky enough to be part of that nature studies curriculum. You know, we had this very small era, too short era in American public schools where we had nature studies in the schools and, you know, with curriculum written by people like Julia Ellen Rogers, Rachel Carson was one of the young people who benefited from those books and from that curriculum. So was Aldo Leopold. I mean, he went through mm-hmm. nature studies in the Iowa public schools in that same era that Julia Ellen Rogers had created nature study guides for the Iowa public schools. And I think that's all so very important and so telling. And it's not a story that's well known or a time that we think about a lot because it was it was before World War One. And so many things happened after that with, you know, with science and and wars and, and globalism to follow. And so we sort of forget that important moment in, in history. And I think there's some, some interesting lessons there. And when you read The Sense of Wonder by Rachel Carson, you kind of get a glimpse into that ethic and that aspiration to help reconnect children, especially to the nature around them, the nature that remains. And there, there are wonderful animals that remain that include these great marine mollusks of the sea that we can help you know, take a child by the hand and show her a tide pool. And, and it's a really important piece of the answer to what ails us as, as a culture now and, and as a planet. I love that that takes us full circle back to that, that disconnect we were talking about up top and how important it is to find that, that connection once again. Cynthia Barnett, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It has been wonderful to talk with you. And thank you for reading the book and for your great questions. It was a lot of fun. Thank you too to Ryan McAvoy, the Yale Broadcast Studio, and Daniel Block for their work on this episode. When We Talk About Animals is supported by the Law, Ethics, and Animals program at Yale Law School. 
We would love it if you would subscribe to When We Talk About Animals on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. Write us a review and check out our website, whenwetalkaboutanimals.org, where you can find out more about Cynthia Barnett and her remarkable new book, The Sound of the Sea. Thanks for listening.